If you kick a ball in the air or hit a tennis ball with a racket into the air, it will have a trajectory. It will go up and like in an arc, and then it'll reach its top, its apex, and then begin to come down. And that sort of trajectory has been used at times to describe often what can happen to a church. A church can grow and develop and reach an apex, and then it can begin to descend. Let me tell you a story, a true story about a church, Northfield Church in America. It was formed back in 1952. The farmer in that area, he sold a lot of land for development, and he donated the farmhouse in the middle of the land that had been sold. He donated the farmhouse for a church to begin there. And a church began, and over the years it grew. So that by its 25th anniversary in 1977, there was a full complex of a, a worship building, of church halls, of Sunday school rooms, and there were 400 people attending that church each weekend. But then things began to decline. That was the top of the curve. Then things began to go downhill, very gradually at the beginning, but then it picked up speed. And by the year 2008, the number of regular tenders at that church was less than 60. The church needed $200,000 in order to repair its property, and I'm sure most of those members at that stage were elderly. And so the elders decided it was time to close the church. The buildings were sold, and the members were scattered to other congregations in the area. Now, why did that happen? David Murrow, in his book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, and you'll hear quite a bit of it this morning and this evening, he says the major reason for that church's decline was that the congregation moved from offense to defense. Now, those are American, particularly American sports terms, offense, not about offending people, but offense in basketball or American football is about attack, trying to score a touchdown, a basket, or a goal. Defense is about protecting what you have. And he gives us this table here of to show the difference between a young church which is in a offense and established church which is in defense. And just look at this together. A young church, which is an offense, it will, knows it has to grow or it will die. But for an established church, often growth, new people coming in, can be seen as disruptive. A young church, it has an external, an outward focus. It's very much looking at the world around it. Where often an established church becomes internal focus, inwardly looking more at its members. A young church is goal-orientated, how it can achieve certain things. Where for an established church, often just gathering, meeting together, is the goal. For the young church, they know they must bring in new people. They have to bring in new people to survive and to continue. But for an established church, they must keep existing people happy. That becomes more of the priority. A young church is quite innovative, trying different things, where the established church becomes very predictable. 
In the young church, there's a high demand of members. There's a high expectation about their commitment. But often for an established church, the expectation, the demand becomes low. A young church is laying part. The whole members realize it's their task to seek to build a church and to reach out. We're often established churches are clergy-driven. It's basically what the minister says. For a young church, there's strategic planning and building. There's strategies how we can develop and grow and make things better. But for the established church, it's about maintenance. For the young church, it exists to achieve something. It's trying to achieve different things week by week. Where for an established church, it exists as a network of relationships. A young church is orthodox. It's very clear about what it believes and its principles. Where for an established church, it becomes heterodox. We'll come back to that in a wee while, but it means it's really what it believes sometimes gets a bit twisted. And that's in many ways what David Murrow says what happened to that church in Norfolk. It moved from being that vibrant young church to that sedate, established church, and it died. And a wee illustration of this is what happened in 1983 in that church. In 1983, when the attendance of the church was still strong, but it had been flat for about five years, the elders of Northside, they agreed to a new outreach program, which had been successful in a sister church. So they agreed in session they would do this. But there were two people in the congregation who ran an existing program, which was unfruitful and hadn't achieved very much in years. They objected to this new program because it would impact of what they're doing. They stirred up the opposition of the other members of the congregation against this new plan. And because the kickback was so fierce, the elders scrapped the new program. And that, in many ways, was the death knell of that church. It was more concerned about keeping some people happy than really reaching out to the community around it. And if a church is not going to decline, if it's going to grow and be strong, well, it needs to be prepared to go against the status quo. It needs leaders who are prepared to take risks, to advance. It needs leaders like who we see in the picture here, Joshua. It needs leaders who are brave in stepping out of their comfort zones. Statistics have proved that when a church is growing, it is strongly linked to men being particularly active in that church. Churches with a shortfall of active men usually are churches in decline. And in many ways, men, it depends on you and me. Yes, our ladies have an important task to play, but it's been proved again and again whether a church will grow or decline very much depends on men. And we're going to see this morning as we think of Joshua about the sort of men that we should be. If we're going to be men, 
who are going to be used in this church for it to grow and develop and not to be a church that continues to decline. So let's learn about this great person, Joshua. First of all, I think there are six points here this morning. First thing we see about him is his apprenticeship. Before he was a leader, he was the assistant to Moses, that great man of God, that man of God who spoke with God face to face in a way that no other man has ever done so since. For at least 40 years, that's the time in the wilderness, for at least 40 years, Joshua had this role of being Moses' assistant. So he had many, many years to learn from this great man of God. As an assistant under Moses, he was able to have his mistakes corrected. There's a wee incident in Numbers 11 when Moses had, under God's guidance, had 70 men appointed who the Spirit would come on and use. And there were two men who hadn't turned up, and then they started to prophesy, and Joshua wanted to stop it, but Moses corrected him. So, as he was growing up through his apprenticeship, he was learning the right way and he was having the wrong ways in his life being corrected. And as an assistant to Moses in that battle with the Amalekites, he was learning how to fight for the Lord. And you think of how Joshua, he would go and the battle of Jericho and many other battles when Moses would be gone, how the battles like with the Amalekites was important preparation for him to learn to be a leader in himself. In men's ministry, it is so important for men to come together. It's so important as men we learn from each other. And if you have a, a situation in a church where there's a great sense of being a team among men, if that is something that can be created and developed, where we really then encourage and help each other, then the future of the church is so positive. So, the first thing was his apprenticeship. The second thing was his spirituality. He was a spiritual man. He was a man in touch with God. When Moses met with the Lord at the tabernacle, as we said the kids, Joshua was there, and he refused to leave even after Moses had left. He loved being in the presence of God. And one of the key characteristics to his leadership was how he was in constant communication with the Lord. We think of how in Joshua chapter 1, when he was taking over and going to cross the River Jordan, the Lord spoke to him. We think in Joshua 5, before the battle of Jericho, he had that encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, who probably was, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, he had this living relationship with the Lord. God spoke to him. He spoke to God. It was alive. If you had said to Joshua, God doesn't exist, Joshua said, well, I spoke to him this morning, and he spoke to me. Of course he exists. I know God. He had that sort of life. And it was this knowledge of God, it was these encounters of God that guided and sustained his dynamic leadership as he took over the promised land. 
that relationship, that communication he had also helped in times of trouble. Such as in Joshua chapter 7, when they took on the small city of Ai after the victory of Jericho, they took on the small city of Ai, and because of the sin of a man called Achan, they were defeated and 36 men were killed. And what was Joshua's automatic reaction when things didn't go well? He immediately turned to the Lord, and he stayed in the Lord's presence until he got an answer. One of the few failures in his leadership was when he was deceived by the Gibeonites. Remember the Lord had told him that when he went into the promised land, he wasn't to have any agreement with these nations that lived there because they would lead the people of God astray. But these Gibeonites pretended to come from a distant land, and Joshua was tricked. Why was he tricked? We are told he didn't inquire of the Lord, and that would have ongoing consequences. Gentlemen, what we will be, what we can achieve in our lives in regards to the kingdom of God, will very much depend on our relationship with God, our communication with the Lord. If we are people who are praying and listening to the Lord, if our relationship is alive, the third thing about Joshua was no doubt his courage. His courage was seen in those earlier days when he took on the Amalekites. It was seen when I was one of the spies who had investigated the promised land. When the others were chickening out, he along with Caleb were able to stand and say, we can do this. We can win this victory because of his faith in the Lord. He believed they could and defeat these enemies. And that courage came from faith in a big God. The faith and courage which he greatly needed came that he had this high and exalted view of God. Sometimes God is too often today pictured as a chum and a mate. That is not the God that Joshua knew. He knew God well. He knew God in a close relationship. But he knew that this God was high and exalted over everything else. And if we are going to be men in this church who are going to make sure that we're not just going to be a church that's sedate and comfortable, but a church that's going to step forward and reach out and go out of our comfort zone, we need that courage that Joshua had from his faith in the Lord. You'll see how we picture coming up there on the screen of a man called Alexander Yuzik. He is the current heavyweight champion of the world. And he beat Anthony Joshua last year, and he's preparing for a rematch with Joshua. At least he was preparing. Alexander Yuzik lived in London, but he's not in London today. Alexander Yuzik today, he's a Ukrainian. And he's gone back to Ukraine to sign up and to be involved in the defense of his country. There's a multi-millionaire. There's a man who could easily have just stayed in England, stayed in his mansion, stayed in his wealth and his luxury, stayed in his comfort zone. But he said, no, 
there's a battle that's more important. And I am going to be in the middle of it. In our congregation, in our Kirk session meetings, in our committee meetings, in our, the meetings of our organizations, we need to be courageous. Men, we need to be risk takers. We need to be willing to go out of our comfort zone and take the battle to the enemy. We need to be those who are willing to not just be a congregation that is just maintaining things till the last person disappears, but a congregation under Christ that is reaching out. And one of the important things is that as a courageous church, as a church led by men who are willing to take risks, and men who are not just content with maintaining the status quo, men who are willing to go out of the comfort zone, that will be a church which will attract men who are the hardest people in society to reach with the gospel today. Men will be attracted to a church where there is courage on display. David Murrow says this, men are hardwired for risk-taking, particularly young men. The number one killer of 15 to 24-year-old males is accidents. Young fellas, drive carefully though. Churches need men because men are natural risk-takers, and they bring that orientation into the church. Congregations that do not take risks atrophy. They decay, they die. Jesus made it clear that risk-taking is necessary to please God. Think of the parable of the talents. Who did he command? The one who took a risk in investing his talents. Who did he condemn? The one who just held on to what he had. And David Murray goes on and says this, Today's church is full of passivity activists whose greatest energies are devoted to fighting change. Like those two people back in that church at Northside who fought the chains that probably would have saved their church. So often you find that in the church today. Some people's motto is, I don't know what the change is, but I'm against it. That is not the church of the Bible. That's not the church of the Old Testament. That is not the church of the New Testament. And people often love the, the status quo, even when it's proved that it isn't working. David Morrow says this, churches now judge success by the standards of a family reunion, i.e., how many people came and did everyone get along? A big, happy crowd equals a crop. I remember as a young minister, not here in another situation, one of the first real challenges that Sheriff and I encountered was over a thing called the Women's World Day of Prayer. And the Women's World Day of Prayer was an ecumenical event. And in that year, all those years ago, the money being raised at it was going to support the Romanian Orthodox Church, which were actively persecuting evangelical missionaries in that country. And yet, the women in this church that we were in 
were very happy to be involved in that event. It was an ecumenical event, and the nonsense of the situation was that most of these women, their husbands were in the Orange Order, which among other things is strongly opposed to any sort of ecumenism. So their men would go to the Orange Order one night, and the women would go to the Women's World Day of Prayer another night. And when I pointed out the inconsistency of this to some of these women, do you know what the answer was? But it's a nice meeting. It's a nice meeting. And so, how they were judging the situation was of whether or not it made them feel good. It felt nice. And reality, what they had become part of was a religious entertainment business. If we are just about nice meetings, which those who come think are nice, we have lost sight of what the church is about. Because the church is about changing people, transforming people, reaching people. That doesn't mean that meetings can't be nice, but they have to be doing something for the kingdom. The fourth thing we see about Joshua is his obedience. When Joshua was being encouraged to be courageous, he was also encouraged to remain close and obedient to God's law. You read that in Joshua 1 where he told you to be bold and courageous, and don't let this law depart from your mouth. Meditate it on it day and night. And this obedience in Joshua was seen in how he called the priests to go into the River Jordan. It was a time of flood. And he told the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the River Jordan. What a stupid thing to do. But God had told him to do it. And the priest stepped into the River Jordan, and the water all stopped, and the children of Israel passed through it. Why did Joshua do it? The Lord had said so. And then when it come to the battle of Jericho, what a crazy thing to do to defeat a battle. For six days to walk around the city, and then on the seventh day to walk around it seven times and blow a few trumpets. How is that going to defeat a city? Joshua did it. Why? Because the Lord had called him to do it. Men need to be leaders who follow through the commands and the principles of God's Word. The very essence of being a Reformed church, which we are here in Brookside, is allowing God's Word to reform and to keep reforming us, keep changing us. That's what stops us from being static. That's what stops us from being declined. That will stop us from being dying, is allowing God's Word to continue to adjust who we are. One of the great cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, Scripture alone, which means we long for the teaching of the Scripture to be at the heart of everything that we do, and it means doing whatever it takes to get more people regularly under the teaching of God's Word. But I fear at times we have taken decisions which go against that principle, the principle of getting as many of our people as possible under the Word of God, and we have gone against that. John Calvin, you'll see up on the, the screen, his great passion and teaching in Geneva. John Calvin, in the first time he was in Geneva, was constantly being held back. He and the other leaders who were with him 
were constantly being held back because the city council, it was a different days from us, but the city council had control over the churches. And they were so cautious. They didn't want chains. They didn't want things to be guided according to the word as Calvin and his fellow leaders wanted it to be. And so in the end, Calvin was put out of Geneva. They just didn't want what he was saying. And it was only when things in Geneva became a real mess that they then invited him back and part of the caution had disappeared. We need to be living in obedience to God's Word. We need to be living in obedience to the principle of Scripture and doing whatever we can to get the Word out there. That's why, that's why I, I do those little talks and Stanley does those talks Monday to Friday. That's why for this last year, we've had our morning and evening services. That's why those things have been important. That's why I've been bothered to do that when I could easily have done far less. Because a church that will grow is a church that will get the Word into as many people's hearts as it can. And our decisions need to reflect that. The fifth thing, two things quickly. The fifth thing about Joshua next was his organization whether it be at the crossing of the Red Sea and read these chapters in Joshua, or whether it be at the defeat, uh, the victory over Jericho, or the later victory over Ai the second time round, there's a great sense of organization in what uh, Joshua does. He's guided by the Lord to be a really good organizer. And not only was Joshua good at guiding the people, he used his officers, his priests, alongside him to guide the people as well. He trained people to be good organizers also. And when it came to dividing up the promised land among the tribes, Joshua's skills of organization were seen not just in dividing the land, but in how he kept the people together and encouraged the tribes to remember the responsibility to the others who hadn't got their land yet and to keep working together to drive out the enemy. So here we see someone who was good at organization. Now, as we think of these different qualities, there's some men who are going to be stronger in some areas than others, but these are qualities that are needed in all our lives to some extent. And they make a difference. See in the picture here, two great men of God, John Wesley and George Whitfield. I would say most people here know the name John Wesley better than George Whitfield. They lived at the same time in the 1700s in England. And I will say this, I believe George Whitfield was a better preacher. He's certainly far sounder in what he believed. And yet, why is it most people today hear about Wesley and few know about Whitfield? It's because Wesley was a tremendous organizer. He formed those Methodist societies, those little groups where people came together to nurture their faith, and out of which became the Methodist church. There's a man in America called Steve Sunderman. He lives in Milwaukee. I'll say a bit more about him tonight, but in 1990, he went to be a men's pastor in the church in Milwaukee. He had a particular role of trying to reach men. And he began by doing a small group with a handful of men. And 20 years later, do you know how many men that church had in its small groups, 1,500. 
what organization that is. But that was what was transformed that church and really helped to transform that community. Men being good organizers are needed obviously in large scale things like running a country, like what Joshua had, running a church. But remember this, men. We're also called to be organizers in our homes. Those who are called to be elders are those who manage their households well. And gentlemen, do we really measure up in doing this? Or do we abdicate our responsibilities? One of these men I read, I can't remember who said, they said that ever since the fall, men have been hiding, like Adam hid from God. One final point about Joshua. He was good at training others, and particularly at training the next generation. He was very mindful of this. When they crossed the River Jordan, do you remember what they did when they crossed the River Jordan? They got 12 large stones at God's command from the river and formed a monument. Why? to remind the next generation of what the Lord would do. And Joshua told the men, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them what the Lord did. And then as they crossed the Jordan, the next thing they did was all the males were circumcised who had not been in Egypt. All the males who were born in the wilderness were now circumcised. That covenant sign, it was a sign to the next generation that they needed to be committed to the Lord, that the sin needed to be cut out of their lives. That's what circumcision pointed to, that they were to be committed to the Lord and to reject sin. And so Joshua, he realized that it's not enough for him to encourage people who be faithful. He had to prepare the next generation to carry this on. He was also preparing the next generation in regards to his own family. There's that famous passage in Joshua 24 when he said to the people of Israel, look at the different idols that the nations worship. Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that word serve means worship. Joshua didn't hold a meeting with his family and say, who do you think we should serve? Who do you think we should worship? As the head of the home, he led his family to be worshipers of the Lord. Let me say to fathers, you need to remember that we are the ones who particularly will have to give an account on how our children have been taught and how our children are involved in the life of the church. Ephesians 6 and 4 says, Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And so on the day of judgment, who will be held most to account for whether their children have been taught or not? Who will be held most to account of whether their children have been active in their church or not? It will be the fathers. Yes, parents, mothers have responsibility, but it's fathers who will have the primary responsibility. And fathers, we, have, we will have to give an account in regards to this. 
One of the things that is sad when I just think of the last number of months is it's how, indeed, among Christian families, there's been a terrible inconsistency in attendance at Sunday school. Attendance at church, morning and evening, and attendance at your fellowship. If you want your children to go on with the Lord and to be part of this church, parents, fathers, your children should be at Sunday school. Your children should be at the morning and evening service. Your children should be at the youth fellowship. We have looked at that statistic before that where children are brought to the morning and evening service, 85% of them will continue to be involved in the church. And let me say this about youth fellowship. If you want your children to continue to be involved in the life of this church, they need to be at the youth fellowship. In my experience, young people who don't go to youth fellowship will either A, fall away, or B, go and find support in another church or another organization. Now, fathers, listen to this. On the day of judgment, you will be held to account for your responsibility in this area. And you can't say on that day, but my wife said, Adam tried that and it didn't really work, did it? You will be held to account. Why? Because you're the head, you're the leader, you're the teacher. You're the one who's been given the command to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So what have we learned from Joshua? Let's just have we recap there of the six qualities that we see there. His apprenticeship, he was learning. We need to continue to learn, man. None of us are the finished articles. His spirituality, he knew the Lord. He had that relationship with the Lord. His courage, not just to accept the status quo, but to trust the Lord to advance. His obedience to the commands, to the truth of God. His organization, his ability to organize, and his training of others. Gentlemen, the one, of, one of the verses which really keeps me going as a minister and really keeps me going as a father is we first of Paul's in Corinthians when he talks about this ministry in jars of clay, this ministry that we have in our frailty. And he says, who is fit for this task? And his response basically is, none of us, but all of us by the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's a real challenge here. Father, I realize that for those of us who are men, there are particular responsibilities that we have and responsibilities that we'll have to give an account for one day. But Father, I love that we passage in James which speaks of Elijah and the power that was in his ministry and how, O oh Lord, you used him. And how he is described by James of being of like nature to us. He had all the faults, he had all the frailties, all the weaknesses that we as men here have. 
And yet, Lord, you used him mightily. We can see that in Moses. We can see that in Joshua. We can see that in so many great servants of yours down through the centuries. Father, your servant, D.L. Moody, once heard someone pray, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man totally committed to him. And Moody prayed, Lord, let me be that man. Lord, that our homes, our church, our community, our workplaces would be transformed by us men being filled with the Spirit, filled with your Word, filled with Christ, that we would be men of faith, that we would be risk-takers in the will of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.